Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI. Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. WalterParks.com for more on Walter's music. Devine Dial, thank you for managing WPVM-FM in Asheville. And Robin Collier, thank you for managing KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, there in Taos. If you would like to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. I would love to hear from you. Also remind you that we are sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you would like to improve your writing chops, imaginativestorm.com is a good place to look. Today, I have a friend on this show. Her name is Jennifer Germain, and she and I met because she's part of TEDx Asheville, which is coming up on March the 15th, 2024. So Jennifer and I, along with Barry Bart, we're part of uh, three people who were helping to choose the TEDx speakers. And I've gotten to know Jennifer in person as well as on some of these meetings. And I thought, wow, what a terrific thing to do, have Jennifer on Twice Five Miles Radio. So Jennifer, welcome. Mm, thank you for having me, Nave. It's so fun to be back together after those interviews that we did. Well, I loved those interviews and I would love for you to <laughs> just begin by talking about why you enjoy engaging in the world of communication and language mm -hmm. and people. How did that start? How did that come about? Were you born that way or did you develop mm -hmm. it? It's a great question, Nave. I believe I was born very curious about people. That I think is core to who I am. And I even remember back in high school, I was a certified nurse's assistant, a CNA in high school, and I would go into retirement homes. And I also did deliveries, like my first, not my first job, but early in high school, I did deliveries to some of the elderly throughout my town. And I would sit there and listen to their stories. And what always blew my mind is by that time, every single person in the retirement home or who I delivered to had a fascinating story. It's like they lived their life and there was always a grain of something that just blew my mind that somebody had lived through that. And it started to piece together that I believe just humans have really fascinating stories. And a lot of times earlier on in life, we don't really claim them or we pass them off as it's not really all that grand of what we do. And I see the opposite. I'm always like, wow, this is amazing. I remember one gentleman shared that he saved his two brothers from a house fire and pulled them all out. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. Most people can't say that. So then when you talk about TEDx and doing those interviews, it's such a treat for me to get to hear people's new perspectives and ideas being shared, but some individuals share so deeply, you could see the whole through line that their whole life purpose is exactly on point with what they were doing. And it was fascinating. I don't think I could be any happier than listening to people's stories and especially seeing some that have that incredible through line. It's just a passion of mine, Nave. It has to be of yours too, if you're sitting through all these. Well, it is a passion of mine, no doubt. I want to track just a little bit more the experience you had with the older people when you were a very young woman. What kind of advice did they give you or did they give you advice? Did 
one of those folks tug your sleeve and say, Jen, come here. I, I want to tell you something that you need to know. Did they do that? Or did you just pick up wisdom from them as you interacted with them? Mm -hmm. It was the latter. I don't believe any of them pulled me in really and said, I'm going to give you a great piece of advice. The advice and wisdoms comes through the sharing of the stories and just listening. I remember specifically watching also how all the caretakers in the room were burnt out. Like I was 18 going into these rooms and they would all go for a smoke break and it would be 1030 at night. I'm the only one answering all the calls because they're just tired and this is their full-time job. They've been doing it for years, right? And I had this fresh perspective. So I'd often spend more time with these residents and like still be able to open my ear to them, if that makes sense. I wasn't haggard by the job. I was still fresh and new in the perspective. And I remember this one woman one evening, she had been known to have panic attacks. She came into the retirement home 14 years previously. And at that time, they said she has less than six months. And 14 years later, here she is still in the retirement home. And she had been known to have panic attacks. So there was one night she hit the call button. She hit the call, but I would go to her. She hit the call button again. She hit it again. And I was like, you know, this is probably the precursor of her going through a panic attack. So I just stayed with her. And it was like right on the cusp of when I had to clock out. There's all these rules and regulations of like, you just have to clock out. You we will absolutely not pay overtime. It was this big deal. It was like 1028. I felt like I went into her room and I could tell she was just worked up and she just wanted somebody next to her. So I asked her, like, how can I help you? And she's like, will you please read me the Bible? So I sat there and I just realized at that point, I was like, I would do anything just to stay and comfort her and read her the Bible until she drifted away. And I'll take the repercussions of not clocking out. So I did. I stayed there with her and I read her the Bible until she drifted off and she got into a calm space. And I think that's a piece of humanity is like sometimes we just desire another person and it's nothing more. And there was this wisdom that I carry with me as that being one of the most potent interactions I've ever had in a professional capacity. And the amazing thing was that when I walked out that night, I clocked out right at 1030 and I still in my mind have no idea how that could have been possible because I swear I walked into a room five minutes before and it felt like I I stayed an extensive period of time with her and I still clocked out. So that is a memory of mine that I'll always cherish and taught me a lot in life, Nave. That is a terrific memory. And the reason I'm so interested in this and the reason I asked the question, did someone tug your sleeve and give you advice? When I was 20, I served two years alternate service as a conscientious objector and the alternate service was in lieu of going into the military and going to Vietnam and fighting. And my alternate service took place at Wesley Nursing Center in Charlotte, North Carolina on Shamrock Drive. Fifth floor, I was an orderly. My job was to do similar work to yours. And I remember one fellow, Dr. Hoyle, the dentist, who was an very elegant man, and his room was nicely appointed, and he was there at the end of his life. Nowhere else to go. This was beyond the retirement home. It was a nursing center. Dr. Hoyle always wanted a good bath with lots of soap, and the orderlies never gave it to him. They'd just wipe him down like a dirty car and maybe leave a little mm -hmm. dust on the doors and go on their merry way. So I decided that I was going to give Dr. Hoyle the best bath any human had ever given another human. And I was going to soap that man up until he turned into just a soapy ball rather than a, anything else. And the 
heat the tub, put him in the tub, wash his toes, do everything possible, and then wipe him down and rinse all the soap off, get him as clean and shiny and sparkly as I could possibly get him, and then dress him in his nice clothes and leave him in his chair. And to this day, I feel the same way about that experience with him as you do about the experience with the woman who was having the panic attack. And I have done a lot of work in my life. That was one of the most satisfying experiences I've ever had. So I know what you mean. So as you move forward in your life, as you've moved away from that work, how did it inform your thinking regarding how you interact with people? Did you bring that woman forward? Is she still with you when you embrace the life that you are working in now? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There was a while for years where she went unnoticed by me, but I believe others could feel her. I feel I've always been a safe place for people just to be, to allow themselves. And I was a lawyer for years. So imagine a lot of clients came into my office with, with pain. And I was helping them through their pain. And now I've let go of the lawyer identity to step into more directly of teaching other leaders how to do this. Like, how do we hold humanity in one hand and leadership in the other and realize it's both very closely connected. But during that law period, I felt a lot more hardened by what I was going through. And there was a piece of me that hardened based on the fact of going to the law and running my own business and scaling and all these things. And it was as if I didn't think that part of me still existed. And looking back, it's like, oh, it was there the whole time. Because that's why, I mean, I had clients that stayed with me for years, right? They didn't leave. I just didn't honor that part of me as much because I didn't see it represented as much in others in my industry, to be honest. What kind of law did you practice? Yeah. So I started out doing mergers and acquisitions for a large law firm. And then I continued doing corporate law. And then I was doing employee benefits and corporate law. So a lot of organizational law. And then I even got into it um, when I went off on my own and had my own law firm. I was doing it around educational institutions. So I was representing them. So all the types of law that came with that as well. I'm curious about this hardness that you're talking about. We don't start out hard. We're children. We're just playing in the sand pile. And then life comes along and changes us, alters us, forms us. When did you notice in the work as a lawyer, when did you notice that hardness coming on? And at what point did you realize you wanted to soften and not be hard anymore? How did that work? And where did it lead you? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I will honestly say I do not believe in my scenario that I realized the hardness was coming on. I noticed on the switch, I believe it's a steady process of growth or accumulation to get to that point. And it started just as a child. I was very good at studying and what I did. So then everyone was projecting on me to always go to this next level. So I was always going to the next level. And there was always a large quantity of people asking me to lead something. 
So I remember my first job was detasseling in cornfields when I was in seventh and eighth grade. And I didn't even get out of that area of my life before I was asked to lead crews and to report to the people leading the crews of who was missing the most amount of tassels. And then to talk to the people about the tassels they'd missed. So I was playing this duality of having to talk to upper management and also lead the people that was there. And I carried that through all. So in high school, teachers were always like, you should come and lead this with my group. You should be part of this. And college, I was asked to be on boards. It just started unfolding where I got to the point and what switched for me to notice the hardening is I lost myself. It's like, I didn't actually know who I was. I had grown this law firm, highly successful. It expanded across the nation. I was speaking nationally in this area. And then I got to myself being like, where's my enjoyment? Like, what am I doing for me? What am I actually leading for myself? And I just felt very disconnected and disconnected from myself, disconnected from others. And that's what really brought this around of like, oh, wow, there's almost this endless drive to do better and to achieve more, to be more successful that hardened me because that's the only path I felt like I knew. And by finding myself and reconnecting, I was able to take a different path out of that and see like, oh, there's a lot more to life than just the material world or what we can hold on to with our hands. So you're describing a very successful career as a lawyer. You have a law firm, you have partners. You just said it was a national proposition. So I'm assuming you put a lot of work, investments, time, energy, money, all that comes with that. Most people dream of having a situation like that. They can then say to their friends, look, look at me. I've done this. Or their friends look at them and say, look at how well they did. What drove you to move away from all that? How did you know to give it up? What was the prompt that took you in a completely different direction where you are now? You know, I went to a re- It was a 10-day retreat. This is the prompt. This is where it started. Is I had started to put myself into conferences and going and hearing from others. And it felt like there was this perspective where I first went to a conference and they were saying, go after what your heart desires the most, and that's where you'll be the most successful. And I knew that I'd never really desired to be a lawyer. I just fell into it. So I went up to the mic, shaking like a leaf because I was extremely shy. And I said, what if I know I do not want to be a lawyer, but I don't know what I want to be? And the only thing the person said back to me was, I suggest that you find it as soon as possible. And it left me being like, that's the advice I got. Like I was shaking like a leaf and that guy like didn't help me at all. And it was an opening to something completely different. And I ended up doubling the revenue in my law firm within a six month period of time. And I got shingles the next month, Nave, down my face. And it was the most painful thing I went to. And it took me out for about a month. And I was like, what am I doing? And I had this inner knowing that if I continued down my path, I was going to die at a very young age. My body is going to eat me. Because I over-trumped my body. I over-trumped everything. And I was like, I don't know how to get out. I like literally don't know how to get out. So I went to this 10-day retreat and they brought me down and everyone had to call me by my childhood nickname, which my little brother couldn't say Jennifer when I was born. So my grandmother nicknamed Gigi. So here I am, this hardcore attorney going in and everyone has to refer to me as Gigi. And I could not speak about what I did in life, my career at all for 10 days. 
it rendered me speechless. I had reached out and asked people so much about who they were when I was communicating and relating to the job that they did. I didn't actually know how to talk to people outside of their job. I didn't know what it was like to talk to them. And it was this eye-opening experience for me to be like, whoa, there's so much more to life. And the only thing I know how to be is an attorney, a lawyer. It's like, hi, I'm Jennifer Germain, the lawyer. This is what I can do for you. So that was the catalyst that switched. And when you say about, you alluded to the fact that when I was a lawyer and I had all this success, like people want to go home and tell their friends about it. And the truth is, is you don't have friends to go home and tell about it because you don't really have an opening in your heart to allow people in when you lose yourself in that way, the way that I did. Yeah, that was kind of the catalyst that switched it. And I can't remember, I feel like there was another question in there, Navi, and I don't know if you remember it. There's some other switch that you had, another little side angle. Well, I often ask a, a bunch of questions and they just see where it, where it goes, because this is storytelling really in the end. You made me think of the word loneliness. I'm doing all this work, I get shingles. My body says, hey, wait, we we don't want to do this anymore. Every fiber of your body is telling you it's time to go somewhere else. I'd like for you to reflect a bit on loneliness. Why do you think that word came up in my mind when you were describing your circumstances? Yeah, because I believe I was describing to you my loneliness. So it's a very fitting word. It's isolation. I felt isolated where I was. And when you're isolated, you don't know how to get out. You don't know who to go to to get out. You don't have the capacity to reach out to get out. And I was lucky where I had just a couple of people. I had a coach that I was working with and I had a partner and my coach had the resources to get me out. And she was the one that recommended that 10 day retreat to me and the conference to me. And she was a coach in regards to scaling my business. So in one hand, she helped me double my revenue, which was the only thing I was interested in. In the other hand, once I did that and I started to fall, she was also the one that gave me the resources to find myself again. The ability to hold both of those for myself and to have an incredible amount of support from my partner. But loneliness is an epidemic these days. I've researched this and saw the numbers, even in the legal industry, they're off the charts on how lonely people feel. And I think it gets back to the core of we've got a lot going on inside of us. And we're so deeply scared to share the truth of, yes, I was extremely successful in the outside world, just saw me on stages and scaling and doing wonderful things in my world. But on the inside world, I had two people in my life that I talked to, two. I did not know in my personal life or how to have deep connection with people and what that looked like at that point. Like I just didn't. And it was by my ability to go to retreats and do things for myself that I started to pull myself out of it. But when you're in a deep free state, sometimes the hardest thing is when somebody offers you the hand out is knowing that you should be taking it and not trying to find it on your own. So what were some of the steps you took after the advice from your coach and your partner? How did that happen? Did you feel like you needed courage to do that? Or were you so desperate with shingles that you just took the action because it was the only thing to do? I just knew I had to do it. But bravery encourages the way out. You have to find this bravery and courage to be able to build. Because after going to that retreat, I knew walking away from that retreat on day 10, 
that I was going to let go of law. You have to realize I've got a team. I've got a whole bunch of clientele that I've taken care of for 10 plus years. I've been a lawyer for 10 plus years at that time. I had all these people that were coming to me, just knew me as a speaker. Like I was taking care of this following too. I had a podcast every week we went out doing it. And there was this contradiction. My family was involved in the area I was in as well. So it felt like my whole identity was tied. And I knew that I never desired to have that. It was like the next best thing that people always promoted me into. And it wasn't really my calling. So when you talk about courage, I had to have the courage to continue to take these baby steps to know I had to unfold this and find my own path. And it feels impossible. It just feels impossible. It feels like there's no way you can do it because you can't see and you can't build the plan from the knowing of you'd like to get out. You have to take it one little baby step at a time. I want to say that was 2019. And I started up a second company about a month after going to that retreat to to be able to do what I do now. And I didn't sell my law firm until 2021. It's like turning the Titanic around. How many lives could we have saved if we would have just listened to the warning signs and been brave enough to turn around? But sometimes it's the hardest thing to do because it takes so much courage and bravery. So you brought up loneliness and talked about that, or we brought up loneliness and talked about that. Courage. And you've mentioned throughout the identity. I would like Mm. to hear more from you about identity. It's not a fixed star. It's a moving cosmos that changes all the time. So give us some thoughts about identity. Identity. This is very interesting. When I was scaling my firm, I thought identity was fixed. And I feel for people that go through a rigorous educational background, like I did, especially top of their class, high performers like I was, it's as if you are trained to always know. And in the always knowing and the perfectionism and that type of training, where if a teacher asks you a question, the only thing you reply with is the correct answer. But the truth is there can be many answers to everything. But when we go through that amount of rigorous training, it's as if you have to know exactly where you're going and have the plan in place to get there. And you know this because you're wise. And I know this now that that couldn't be more (laughs) further from the truth. It's just completely impossible. And now I look at identities as we have a whole bunch of identities. I have a whole bunch of identities inside of myself. I was leading with one main identity in my life, this hardcore attorney. And it trumped all my other goodness and all my other identities that I brought along. I just didn't see them. Now I play with all of them. And it's very fascinating. It's given me so much more perspective on who humans are in this world and how we have so many different facets. And there's a lot more empathy that I have for people in many different ways, because I get to play with all of the depths of what's inside of me as well by doing that. So you said you were a high performer or a high performing student. In a way, you got lucky because you were able to take your talents, your skills, your intellect, all of the material that you were born with or the talents you were born with, and actually put them on a a racing track where you could perform. How many high performers do you think are out there who get overlooked? Because sometimes we think, oh, the high performers are few and far between. Do you think that there are a lot more out there than we think, and yet they get overlooked or left behind? 
in my mind says all high performers think they're overlooked. So I think that's the calamity of the high performer, no matter how the highest level we perform at, you can take Beyonce. Beyonce will still strive to continue to be an even better performer, right? So the basis of are high performers overlooked, that's an interesting conundrum <laughs> because I think as humans, we have a capacity to always feel that we've been overlooked or not fully honored for who we are too. When you said I'm a high performer or I'm a high performance student, I immediately, of course, I'm thinking of myself as we all are. I thought, well, you know, I wasn't. I wasn't a high performing mm -hmm. student. I went to high school and I even still have my report cards from the first grade with me. I have that archive. If you look at my report cards, you will see maybe in the course of my career from the first grade to the to the 12th grade, I may have one or two A's on my report card, a couple of B's, but I do have a lot of D's, F's, and C's, not high performance. When I went to Brevard mm -hmm. College, I didn't know how to study, so I flunked out. My grade point average at Brevard Junior College couldn't have been, that is not a high performance. When I went back to college, in my early 30s and put my mind to it, I graduated with a degree in international relations and I had a 3.8 average over a three and a half year period. That would be considered a little more perky than what I had. I wonder, could I have been a high performance student if I had had better environment, a different approach, or was I a high performance student or a high-performance person, high-performing in other arenas, but not just academic. I'm wondering how to measure that. Because when you said I was a high-performance student, I felt like, well, I couldn't do that. So I immediately compared mm -hmm. myself to this standard that may not be that valid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you're alluding to something that I find really fascinating and I question about the educational system is because I said I was a high-performing student which if I asked you, like, what were you a high performer at? I guarantee there's something. It just wasn't the student track at that point. Okay, uh, what would you have said back there? I'm curious, actually, Nave. Well, you know what? I was a high performance questioner. I had a high performance curiosity. I had a high performance sense of adventure and going somewhere and seeing what would happen next. So I was a student of living in the world but not an academic student. And lately, I've come to understand that my talent from a high performance point of view is doing what we're doing right now, interacting with language, storytelling, interacting with people, becoming more and more aware of the environment around me. And I feel like I'm alive and functioning and vital. And when I went to see Dr. Hoyle and gave him his bath. I was high performance in that environment. I couldn't have done better. I got an A with Dr. Hoyle's bath, but nobody would have noticed that. I did though. So that's my high performance side. Yeah, and he noticed it, right? Your high performance there. I do believe we all have very unique genius. 
And your high performance comes through your unique genius. And it's not always represented through school. I think that's very different. And I knew that from a very young age as well, that there was going to be high performers in school. Because my little brother, he ended up becoming the homecoming king. And he's like the one that has a thousand friends. And you look at that compared to me where I was the one that did really well in school. I was a high performer there, but my brother was the high performer in friendships, right? Like he can just have so many people around him all the time. And I feel that that school doesn't always honor that. The traditional school system doesn't really honor what these unique gifts that we all bring into the world, which is just, I'm so happy that I get to share your gift today, Nave. Well, you're right. The school doesn't honor it. And we are trained to think of the high performance in one way. I'm thinking of some of my friends, very close friends. They're really geniuses. And I mean genius in the classic sense of these characters are so smart. I don't know what to do with them. And so I, I don't find myself being at that level. But I've always said, well, I don't really need to be a genius. All I need to know is the phone number of two or three. And I can call them up and ask them. And yet, it's been a bit of a wisdom um, pursuit for me to understand how to embrace as much of myself as possible without comparing myself to the other people around me, which brings up this idea of, of comparison. And, and how do you make that work for you rather than work against you? Mm. It's very true. I think there's a duality that exists. I know inside of myself where sometimes it's working against me and then I have to enter into a different area of myself to realize that that is an outpicturing of, of something that I don't fully believe in. Like I really do truly believe we all have unique genius in it, but I have to find the compassionate side of myself <laughs> that can give me a share, a different perspective. And I have to change the reaction that I brought in of why I'm comparing myself. And even you look at social media and so much online where you don't really get to know people and it all seems like everyone's magical. But my thing behind that, we're all unique, complex people and we have many different facets and some facets come out even stronger to some people than other people, right? It's just the honoring of that. Yeah, I have both. I mean, I think I would guess most of humanity does, but I just have both. Sometimes I'm comparing myself and it takes me out. And then sometimes I live in the full glory of I'm my own unique little bird out here. <laughs> I get a my unique snowflake, shall I say, and I get to be whoever I want. And I love that perspective the most, but I'm going to bounce between them quite often. Well, that's really delightful to think of yourself as a unique snowflake. And I love, especially love my unique little bird flying around out there, which flies us back to the time when you were in the home, the, helping the people who, who were retired. And then bringing all that forward, we've arced over this conversation to now and gone through being a lawyer. And we've talked about identity and courage and, and all of the things that we've experienced. You have this business around leadership. How have you taken all of the work that you have done to this point and turned it into a functioning business that obviously does well for you. What do you offer people? What kind of insight do you give these people? And frame that around the notion of leadership. What does that all mean? Mm. Yeah. I realized doing the law firm thing that a lot of people came to me in regards to conflict. That was the bedrock of what caused pain down the road. 
And almost all of conflicts is created in relationships, like how we hold space for each other, how we're willing to see so many facets of each other. So I let go of the legal identity or the law part so I could sit with people mostly in how do we relate to our worlds and what's going on inside of ourselves is a directly portrayed or reflected onto other relationships that we have. Being able to navigate that can teach us a lot of how to navigate ourselves and others. So I call it harmony. I look at leaders and I was like, let's look at a path of how you can lead people better. And how I believe it's more of a top-down approach to organizations. If we can create more space for leaders to feel better, to realize what it's like to honor that they've got multifaceted identities inside them as well, that they can also honor it in the um, group that they are leading, the organization they are leading. And a lot of my work comes down to when we have reactions, if somebody says something to me and it brings something up inside of me and then I get pissed or I want to go and run away or I want to leave, it's about navigating and understanding why that comes up and why we, some of us may be sitting in a meeting with the pit of our stomach going wild or our chest and our heart beating quickly and how we can transmute that into more connection in a workplace instead of actually pushing people away. It's kind of like, Teaching people that if you play one piano note and it doesn't feel very good over and over again, that instead of continuing to focus on the one piano note, maybe it's time to bring in the harmony and play this other note over here to see if it can balance that note instead. And that seems to be a lot of how I work with people now, the leaders I work with. Do you have an example of a story you might be able to reference that would illustrate that? The leader is playing one note and you say, hey, you have a whole scale on this piano. Why don't you try to make more harmony? Do you have a story about both sides of that in regards to somebody that you've worked with or organization that you've worked with? Yes. And I'll go into the heart of what I hear in a lot of organizations is gossip and complaining, where gossip and complaining is somehow happening or occurring within the people of the organization. And people will say, well, there's no stop to that. And I was like, well, that's not necessarily true. You have to understand what gossip and complaining is and what the opposite of gossip and complaining is, which in my mind is gratitude and appreciation. So a lot of times when you are a leader of an organization and you walk into an environment where the rest of your staff is choosing to complain about a staff member that's not at a meeting, it's having the bravery to stop the meeting and saying, you know, we are actually not giving this person the benefit of the doubt and looking at the facts of the situation. And I had one with a team that was looking at fundraising and they were saying, this person's doing a horrible job because the money isn't in the door. And I was like, well, the facts is the money's not in the door and we're projecting onto the person everything that we think she should have done. And we don't know what she has done or not done to not bring in the money. So it's looking at it from a different perspective and then going back and saying, this conversation stops until that person can come in the room and be with us in this conversation. Kind of like you don't say anything about somebody behind the scenes that you're not willing to say to their face. My ultimate philosophy on that is I truly believe when we are saying things negatively about others, even when they're not in the room, they feel it. 
They absolutely feel it. And when you take that philosophy, it really changes how you look at what you're doing and the words that come out of your mouth as a leader. So going back in and trying to bring somebody into a room and knowing that she's felt a lot of pressure from everyone else in that room to perform and she's underperforming, I bet she has a lot that she's carrying around that doesn't feel good inside of her. So giving them the space to be like, this has got to be really hard what's going on for you and tell us what you've been doing. Mm-hmm. In a situation like that, where you have issues, one person has a critique of another person or of the situation itself, and you can come at it complaining, negative, oh, that person's in the wrong and I'm in the right, make the villain that person, make the good person you. So how do you work with people who have legitimate complaints and how do you get them to move from the negative, which would be a field sign for something maybe legitimate, but going at it in the wrong way. How do you transform somebody into a frame of mind that allows for the critique to come out in a meaningful, useful way? So one quick tool that I offer is it, even if I hold a critique or a way that I think somebody can do better, is I will come to the person and give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe I don't know what they've already tried, or I don't know something that's going on inside of them. And I call it the benefit of the doubt. How can I look at it from an open perspective with curiosity and questioning to see what has been going on for you? What have you tried? What have you not? It feels like to me that you're not doing the right steps to get this result. And as a leader, if you can open with more curiosity and ask questions, if you make them feel safe enough where they can tell you the information, it allows you to come in and see things where maybe it's new ideas, maybe it's a new process, maybe there's education. Of they just have never done it at the level that you have done it before. So you can train them to do it through your eyes. But without the questioning, what we end up doing is telling somebody, you're doing it wrong, you're not getting the results. I keep telling you that you need to do it this way, get the results. That literally leads absolutely nowhere. Because unless you know what's going on inside somebody else's mind, You're just two minds fighting against each other. It's like two fists against each other until you can really dig deeper in and say like, what's going on to see the illusion and what's happening. And I shouldn't even say illusion, like the perspective, the reality of their mind. So you can help and see it. It's almost like sitting side by side and being like, I'm your partner in this, finding the common ground and sitting side by side and looking at the problem. Yeah, I had a very recent experience. I was indeed complaining about another person. And it became a racket with me on and on and on, hang the poor person up on the cross and, you know, do it more than once. Almost became a pleasurable thing to do, really, from my end. And just recently, I discovered why I was doing it. And it was un- the, the, the thing that was bothering me about the situation. And there was something that was wrong with the situation from a broader point of view, when I discovered what I was trying to get at that was bothering me, the solution had nothing to do with the object of my complaints. It was in another category that included the object of my complaint, but it also revealed to me, oh, this is where the problem is, not over here. And once I realized it, I made an adjustment to solve the problem and the whole thing went away. It's like, oh, I get it now. It was it was harmony, which is your theme. 
Yes. And I think you're 100% right is I believe 98% of the time it's something inside of ourselves that it's alluding to that once you play your harmony out, it just goes away in the outside world. But a lot of people haven't been trained to understand how to do this. And I've had tons of situations. I complained last week and now I see it this week. I've gotten rest. I've nourished myself over the weekend. I feel really good. And this higher perspective came through of like, oh my goodness, I reacted on Monday about something, carried it the whole week, and then behind the scenes complained to my partner, like, ick, ick, ick. And I teach this, Nave. So I was like, all right, there's cleanup to do. So I've reached out to the person that activated it in the beginning to say, I would love a redo. As if I could go back to the beginning and say, this is actually kind of what started something. And I would love for you to just hold space for me to say, to share this with you of how I would have redone the situation. I went back to my partner and was like, I would like to redo last week because I realized I was using you as a vessel for my complaints because I didn't go inside myself to figure out my imbalance my chaos instead of my harmony. But it all started with me finding that harmony. And now I'm going back into the world to patch up the hurts that I created because of my disharmony. And I think that's super important as well. That is very, very, very important, which brings us almost to the end of our time together. And before we say goodbye, I'd like to come all the way back around to TEDx Asheville and have you close by reflecting on why that community project led by Barry Barton and you as well and other people in the team, why is that so important and why are you so committed to that? Hmm. It's the sharing of the ideas and the stories. Like everyone has a unique perspective on how they see the world and TEDx Asheville brings people together to hear it. And we're even doing salons throughout the year where we're trying to just create that atmosphere of what is it like to share perspectives and see things under a new light. And while you're doing that, you have to hold space for yourself and others to see things in a new way, to open your eyes to new possibilities. So that's what I love about TEDx. And what is your job at TEDx? It's not really a job. It's all volunteer. What is your volunteer job? Here you are volunteering again, just like you did when you were, were a teenager. Yes, yes, yes. This year, I've done a lot of planning the Red Rug roundtables, the salons. So I'm behind the scenes, the one that brings everyone the salons. And then I do a lot of the logistics and support for the leadership team. Barry and then Vanessa Bell has really brought this to fruition in 2022, carried it through this year. And I'm the one that's casually reminding them every once in a while. I was like, you've got a whole team. You can let go of even more and bring more people in because there's a world of support that's opening up because They've done such a great job in the community leading that TEDx Asheville. Say just a little more about Red 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 Rug Roundtable. It's a fun tongue twister. It's a tongue twister. Don't you just love it? <laughs> red, red, say that three times fast. Red Rug Red Rug Roundtable. Can you say just a yes. little more about Red Rug Roundtable so we can go out on that? Yes, yes. They're such beautiful events. We hosted our first one in June. They've been a culmination. They're the off year between our big TEDx events in Nashville. And it started in June where we introduced the theme of Meet the Moment for the March 15th, 2024 event. And and everyone got to say, what does that mean to them? And share. And there was this, this hot bed of sharing going on. September, we had the next event 
event and our applications opened up for speakers. Around 75 people that came into the room and 43 people shared a one minute pitch of their amazing idea and why they would love to be on the TEDx stage. And it was just a facilitation of such great energy and information in that room, which brings us to December where we have now chosen our nine speakers for March. And you were such a lovely part of that. Now in December, we're going to bring five of the runner-ups into the room and they're going to share five minutes on their great ideas so we can hear from them. Because I think the one perspective I walk away is there's so many good ideas here and I can't wait to hear even more and bring more of them to the Asheville community. Well, it was a real pleasure for me to work with you and with Barry on this process of choosing the TEDx Asheville speakers. I think we started out with written applications. How many do we have? 120 or... Oh, they went over 200. I think they had like 246. 246 written applications. And then you and Barry (laughs) moved through those, separated some and put some in another pile. And then our evaluation committees got, I I think I had 40 or 50 that I had to go through and give Mm -hmm. a rate. And then we trimmed it down. And then we ended up with 18 videos. And then we finally ended up with nine people. So it was a real pleasure to, to do that work. And you're quite right. The ideas are everywhere. We all have them. And maybe at the end of the day, the question really is, can you have enough uh, confidence to value the ideas you have and know that whatever your ideas are, someone would like to hear them and they're worth sharing? I agree with you, Nave. It's just everyone feeling confident enough to share their perspectives. Because I know from going all the way back to when I was 17 in that retirement home, there wasn't a single one that didn't have a great idea and a great perspective to share. And so as we say goodbye, tell everybody how they can reach out to you. And if they're interested in TEDx Asheville, how can they become involved if they happen to be in Asheville or attended in, yeah. in March? Even if you're not in Asheville, you can always travel there. A lot of people do. Yes, yes, yes. It's a beautiful place to travel to. So TEDxAsheville.com is the website and you can sign up for a newsletter to always stay updated. December 5th, it's a Tuesday night, 5.30 to 8.30 is the next Red Rug Roundtable. You got to say that slowly. And then March 15th is our big event. So TEDxAsheville.com. You can find more information there. And if you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on LinkedIn, Jennifer Germain, or Instagram, Jen period Germain, or at breathefireintolife.com is my website. Well, we have put a little fire into our conversation, and I really do appreciate it, Jennifer. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on Twice Five Miles Radio. Mm, Thank you for having me, Nave. This is such a pleasure. And there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my conversation with Jennifer Germain. We have a few minutes before the top of the hour. And with that time, I'd like to reflect on a comment Jennifer made about harmony and leadership. So often when you hear the word leadership, or I know this is true with me, you might automatically think of a person in a position of power like a president or a CEO or the director of an organization like the director of the Red Cross or someone who owns a business or the minister of a church. Indeed, these people are in positions of traditional leadership roles, and some of these folks are harmonious leaders and others are disruptive leaders, and you've probably encountered both harmonious and disruptive leaders in your life. Harmonious leaders are a lot easier to follow than disruptive leaders, that's for sure. Either way, harmonious or disruptive, one of the stumbling blocks to a discussion around leadership is so often 
when one talks about leadership, one thinks of the leader as somewhere in another place other than where they are. And yet, when you think about leadership from a very personal point of view, you are the leader of your own life. And you make harmonious decisions, you make disruptive decisions, and each decision you make, large or small, is an act of leadership for yourself. Have you ever thought that you are as much a leader as anybody else? It may be a different scale, and yet it's the same idea Leading yourself harmoniously throughout your life, making the daily decisions you need to make, is as much an act of leadership as leading a thousand people in a big organization. And just like decisions in a large organization, many of your personal decisions have impactful, large consequences. Sometimes they go in the positive direction, sometimes in the negative direction, sometimes just right down the middle. And the idea, of course, is to make as many decisions as possible in the direction of something that will work out in a positive way for you. For example, on a very personal note, one of the most positive leadership decisions I ever made, I made it in my late 30s. And that decision was to find a regular family practice doctor I could visit once a year for my annual physical. I chose Dr. Elizabeth Twarden, who still practices in Asheville. And over the 30-year period from my late 30s until now, she has seen me once a year, and now she sees me twice a year. So I have allowed her to take the leadership role in helping me monitor my health. So I took my own leadership role in finding her, and now we collaborate together, sharing a dual leadership role regarding how I manage my health. What I've discovered over the years, a good family practice doctor, like Dr. Torden, is very open to all kinds of practices and therapy beyond just the Western medicine model. That said, for my purposes, I like her Western medicine approach in combination with suggestions around alternative ways to approach things. A good example of an alternative piece of medical advice Dr. Torden gives me every time I visit her, and this may surprise you, she says, drink a lot of water. Of course, since we're made out of 80% water, drinking a lot of water makes a great deal of sense. I have to admit, sometimes I don't often drink as much water as I should. Even so, Dr. Torden's piece of advice of drinking more water sticks with me, and I do make the effort to do it, and I think over the years it's paid off. So I'm very satisfied with Dr. Torden's medical leadership around my health and my medical leadership around my health as well. It's a blend of Western medicine and also alternative thinking, which I find to be exactly right for what I'm trying to do in maintaining my personal health leadership. And one of the reasons why there's harmonious leadership involved with my relationship with Dr. Torden is because she keeps it simple. I know medicine is a complicated proposition, and yet when we're sitting there in the examination room, she's very straightforward. She asks me straightforward questions that allow me to give her straightforward answers. For example, she's often said to me, how many times a week do you walk and for how long? And my usual answer is I take a, an hour-long walk at least four or five times a week. Her simple question is very easy to answer. Just tell the truth and that's that. And yet built into that question is a tremendous amount of science, a tremendous amount of Western medicine knowledge, 
which she's able to use to evaluate where I am. My heart, for example, is in good shape because I take those walks. She also knows that if she encourages me to continue to walk, my heart will continue to be in good shape. So Dr. Twarden is a good example of how someone can take a leadership role in another person's life, and it can be on a small scale, just between the two of us, and yet the scale is rather large when I stretch it out over 30 years. I give Dr. Twarden a great deal of credit for keeping me on track, so here we are back to the collaborative leadership role between the two of us. My decision to go see Dr. Torden all those years ago is one small example of personal leadership. You can probably think of many examples in your own life where you've taken the responsibility for yourself and led yourself in a direction that worked out very well for you. So when we think of the idea of leadership, it's wise to think of ourselves both as leaders and followers. It's not just one or the other, it's both, and it's happening all the time. Not just in important situations, in everyday activities we do between the people that we know. We're leading each other, we're following each other. It's in a sense like the murmuration of blackbirds. You've seen those beautiful sky scenes late in the day when the blackbirds are swirling around above the trees. And when you look at the murmuration of blackbirds, it's impossible to know which blackbird is leading and which blackbird is following. And the reason it is impossible to know is because the leadership roles amongst the blackbirds are constantly shifting. One blackbird leads over this way and part of the murmuration follows that blackbird while another one goes another way. And soon you have art in the sky created out of the harmonious elements that exist in nature. And since we are part of the harmonious elements that exist in nature, because how could we exist anywhere else? We have the opportunity to participate in our lives and the lives of others in the same mysterious way the blackbirds participate when they're flying above the trees. Then, of course, coming back to the large leadership roles some CEOs have with great organizations. You may not think of Taylor Swift, the singer-songwriter, as a CEO of a great organization. And yet, when you think of the work she does with all of the thousands and thousands of people who show up for her concerts, what she is doing is she is allowing her fans to take the leadership roles in their lives. Even though she's one person in a big leadership role, she is suggesting to everybody in those big stadiums they can do a leadership role within their lives as well. So I know Taylor Swift may not be the model of a CEO that you had in mind, and yet when you think about the impact she's had on the world, what better example of a chief executive officer leading large groups of people, including those in her organization, in a way that makes everybody feel like they have a sense of leadership, be it large or small. And on that note, I'm going to assume a harmonious leadership role and say thank you ever so much for being part of this show and listening to Jen Germain's conversation about leadership and following all the way through to the end of the show. I really do appreciate it. And with that, I will say you have been listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always airing first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville 
Nashville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, for more on Walter's music. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVMFM in Asheville. And Robin Collier, thank you for managing KCEI Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. I really appreciate it. If you would like to reach me, Nave at jamesnave.com is a good place to look. I would love to hear from you. What's your story? What's your leadership role in the community you live in? Hey, I can't wait to hear that story. Nave at jamesnave.com. I'd like to remind you that we're sponsored by the Imaginative Storm Writing Project. If you would like to improve your writing chops, Imaginative Storm is a good place to check out. Also, I do a regular Saturday morning workshop with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston. You can find that link on Imaginative Storm. The workshop's always free, and you're always welcome to join us. So, hey, once again, thank you for spending this time with me and with Jennifer Germain. And I do hope you come back again sometime soon. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.